You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 232 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. We finished up the last show with the Federal's appalling ransacking of Fredericksburg, and we shared how this outrage, combined with the severe bombardment of the town and the sight of terrified civilians fleeing the shelling, only reinforced Confederate stereotypes of Yankee wickedness. One rebel officer raged that between the bombardment and the looting, Fredericksburg had been turned into, quote, a monument to the barbarity of the abolitionists. We also talked about how the stubborn defensive stand of William Barksdale and his Mississippians on December 11th had ruined Ambrose Burnside's plan to quickly cross the river on his pontoon bridges. That day, the Confederates held Fredericksburg much longer than anyone had anticipated. Barksdale provided Lee with ample time to start concentrating his army on the heights behind the city. When all was said and done, by the time darkness brought an end to the fighting on the 11th, Barksdale had bought Robert E. Lee a full day, more than the Confederate commander ever would have hoped for. But then Burnside gave Lee a second full day, because despite the fact he'd had nearly a month in which to prepare for his attack, Barksdale's stand had thrown a wrench into his plans, and now the federal commander felt he needed one more day to consolidate his foothold across the Rappahannock and finalize details. And so he spent the entire day on Friday, December 12th, deploying Franklin's and Sumner's Grand Divisions on the far side of the river. Between Barksdale's stand on the 11th and Burnside's hitting the pause button on the 12th, that turned out to be all the time Robert E. Lee needed to bring up Stonewall Jackson's troops to join Longstreet's corps at Fredericksburg. Prior to this, that is, after Jackson's men had arrived on the scene from the Shenandoah Valley, Lee had deployed them over a 25-mile stretch of the Rappahannock south of Fredericksburg, to cover any movement Burnside might have made in that direction. But once Burnside tipped his hand on December 11th, and Lee knew for certain that the enemy attack would come right at Fredericksburg, the Confederate commander sent word to Jackson to bring his troops up and join Longstreet's men at Fredericksburg. If you happen to have picked up the Civil War atlas that we refer to most often, Echoes of Glory, 
Illustrated Atlas of the Civil War by Time Life, then you can turn to the map on page 88 and see how each army was deployed after the two Federal Grand Divisions had crossed the river and after Stonewall Jackson's Corps arrived at Fredericksburg to join Longstreet. You can see quite clearly how the Yankees, even though they'd finally secured a foothold on the far side of the Rappahannock, are hemmed in by the Confederate defensive line. On December 12th, Bull Sumner's right Grand Division consolidated its position in Fredericksburg, while William Franklin's left Grand Division did the same on the floodplain below the town. The two Federal Corps that made up Franklin's wing of the army had crossed over the bridges at the lower crossing site just downstream from Fredericksburg. Once across the Rappahannock, Baldy Smith's Sixth Corps and John Reynolds' First Corps had deployed on the flat, open bottomland between the river and the Confederate defensive line. And FYI, but Reynolds and his men had been here at Fredericksburg before, in the spring of 1862, during the Federals' first occupation of the town, and Reynolds had favorably impressed the local population as a fair and kind-hearted provost. So much so that when he was captured down outside Richmond during the Seven Days Battles that summer, Fredericksburg residents had petitioned for Reynolds' release. Late on the afternoon of the 12th, Ambrose Burnside crossed over the river on one of the pontoon bridges at Fredericksburg and spent some time with Bull Sumner, examining the Confederate position on the heights beyond Fredericksburg. Then the Federal commander rode down to see William Franklin. It was getting dark by that time, so Burnside made only a brief inspection of the left Grand Division's dispositions with Franklin, and then the two men returned to Franklin's headquarters to confer with Baldy Smith and John Reynolds. Franklin and his lieutenants urged Burnside to launch his main attack on their front. Franklin wasn't certain exactly how strong the Confederate line to his front actually was, since Robert E. Lee kept his troops in this sector concealed in the woods, but Franklin reasoned that it would certainly be easier to attack here than try to assault the rebels' fortified position up behind Fredericksburg on Marie's Heights. After making the case for the big Federal push to occur on his front, Franklin said that he wanted the attack to start before dawn the next morning so his men could cross the open floodplain under cover of darkness, and he would need substantial reinforcements from Hooker's Center Grand Division to cross the river and support his, Franklin's, effort against the Confederate right. At the meeting itself, Burnside apparently refused to commit himself to Franklin's plan, but when he left, everyone was under the impression that he had promised to send written orders later that evening, which would presumably approve their scheme to attack Lee's right early the next morning and would give detailed instructions for the assault. At least that was the impression Burnside seems to have left with Franklin, Baldy Smith, and John Reynolds. And so, as the army commander rode off into the darkness, the three generals settled down to share dinner and await the anticipated orders. But after leaving the meeting, Burnside lost precious time when he may have possibly got lost returning to his headquarters, or he may have wasted the time in trying to find Bull Sumner up in Fredericksburg to consult with him again. 
But Burnside wasn't able to find him, since he was unaware that Sumner had went back to his own HQ across the river. Well, whatever the reason, by the time Burnside returned to his own headquarters, around midnight, he had lost several critical hours that he could have used formulating his orders. As a result, he had to spend the early morning hours of Saturday, December 13th, preparing the written orders that his subordinates had expected to receive the night before. In his book on the Battle of Fredericksburg, Frank O'Reilly writes, quote, Fogg blanketed Fredericksburg again on December 13th, promising another day of unseasonable warmth. The weather observer in Georgetown recorded the temperature as 34 degrees at 7 a.m. By 2 p.m., the mercury rose to nearly 60 degrees. Frost on the battlefield quickly gave way to mud. O'Reilly continues, quote, Robert E. Lee rose before dawn and went to his advance command post on Telegraph Hill. He listened to the sounds of movement through the fog. Soon, James Longstreet and two of his division commanders, Lafayette McClaws and Robert Ransom, joined Lee. The officers huddled by a fire while Longstreet relied on his shawl-like blanket to keep warm. Jeb Stewart showed up later and took his place by the fire. Soon after his arrival, Stonewall Jackson and his staff loomed out of the fog. Jackson glistened in the new uniform that Stuart had given him, much to the delight and amusement of the gathering. Most of them had never seen the plain Virginian so adorned. Jackson completed his ensemble with an appropriately gilded cap. Telegraph Hill would soon be renamed for the Confederate commander, so if you visit the battlefield today, you'll see it marked on your map as Lee's Hill. But by locating his field headquarters at this spot, at the center of his lines, Lee could observe events on both Jackson's and Longstreet sectors. On the morning of December 13, 1862, as the fog began to lift to the south on Jackson's front, it revealed the mass of Franklin's Federals to the gathering of Confederate officers on Telegraph Hill. Perhaps inspired by Stonewall's splendid new outfit, James Longstreet decided to have some fun at Jackson's expense. He asked Stonewall, Are you not scared by that file of Yankees you have before you down there? Jackson, not amused, replied, Perhaps I'll frighten them after a while. Robert E. Lee requested that Jackson and Stewart accompany him on a brief inspection of Stonewall's lines. As Stonewall mounted his horse, Longstreet attempted another jab at his fellow corps commander. He jokingly asked, Jackson, what are you going to do with all those people over there? After a brief moment of consideration, Stonewall replied seriously, Sir, we will give them the bayonet. Although Longstreet meant no harm with his teasing, the fact was that Jeb Stewart was one of the very few people who could draw even the least bit of humor out of Stonewall Jackson. The stern, serious Jackson and the easygoing, fun-loving Stuart had struck up an unlikely friendship, and now, as the two rode with Lee to inspect Jackson's lines, Stonewall was no doubt glad that most of Stuart's cavalry had been assigned the task of guarding his, Stonewall's, right flank. 
As they set out, Lee, Jackson, and Stewart passed the divisions of George Pickett and John B. Hood, who made up the extreme right of Longstreet's lines. If you looked at a map showing the Confederate dispositions, you would see that they were not really in a straight line, but were kind of curved or bow-shaped, with the center bending back away from the river due to the nature of the terrain. Anyway, because Hood and Pickett were farther back from the main Confederate line, they were expected to act as a general reserve for the entire army. Hood, in particular, had a complex mission since his right linked up with the left of A.P. Hill's division of Stonewall Jackson's corps. Longstreet had already given Hood instructions to cooperate with A.P. Hill, and he also gave Pickett similar discretionary orders to cover any possible movements Hood might make. At any rate, during the course of the day, as circumstances dictated, Hood would end up receiving orders from all three senior Confederate generals, Longstreet, Jackson, and Robert E. Lee. Given the lay of the land on his portion of the line, which was more wooded, and the high ground not as dominating as it was in Longstreet's sector to the north, Stonewall Jackson decided to create a defense in depth. A.P. Hill's division manned the first line, which ran almost two miles from Prospect Hill near Hamilton's Crossing to the south, and then up to connect with Hood's right flank. William Tolliver's division formed part of Stonewall's second line to the left rear of A.P. Hill. The just-arriving division of Jubal Early would form to the right of Tolliver, completing the second line. And by the by, but Early was commanding Dick Yule's division, since Yule was still recovering from the amputation of his leg after being seriously wounded at 2nd Manassas. The division commanded by Stonewall's brother-in-law, Daniel Harvey Hill, was making a 20-mile forced march to reach Fredericksburg from where it had been positioned downriver, and now, as it arrived on the morning of the 13th, D.H. Hill would slot his division in behind Tolliver and Early, where it would act as Jackson's Corps Reserve. D.H. Hill, Jubal Early, and A.P. Hill were all solid combat commanders. A.P. Hill, though, had a troubled relationship with Stonewall Jackson, as did Tolliver, who, besides being the only non-West Pointer among Jackson's division commanders, had also got off on the wrong foot with Stonewall earlier in the war. Stonewall wasn't one to forgive and forget, but even laying that aside, Tolliver probably would have had a tough time living up to Jackson's exacting standards for anyone who led his Stonewall's old division. Anyway. Anyway, two brigades of Jeb Stuart's cavalry extended the right of the Confederate line. The brigade commanded by Robert E. Lee's nephew, Fitzhugh Lee, held the ground between Hamilton's Crossing and the Richmond Stage Road, while the brigade led by the Army commander's son, Rooney, was positioned on the other side of the road, near the river. Did archaeologists discover Noah's Ark? Is the rapture coming as soon as the Euphrates River dries up? Does the Bible condemn abortion? Don't you wish you had a trustworthy academic resource to help make sense of all of this? Well, I'm Dan Beecher, and he's award-winning Bible scholar and TikTok sensation Dr. Dan McClellan. And we want to invite you 
to the Data Over Dogma podcast, where our mission is to increase public access to the academic study of the Bible and religion and also to combat the spread of misinformation about the same. But, you know, in a fun way. Every week we tackle fascinating topics. We go back to source materials in their original languages. And we interview top scholars in the field. So whether you're a devout believer or you're just interested in a clear-eyed, deeply informed look at one of the most influential books of all time, we think you're going to love the Data Over Dogma podcast. Wherever you subscribe to awesome shows. What's something you learned in history class that you feel wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. I believe that all history, no matter how good or bad, needs to be told. There are wars, massacres, battles, and entire historical events that are just not in our school's history books. Have you ever heard of Mary Bowser? I didn't think so. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. So come huddle around the campfire with me and get ready to hear the stories that you were robbed of. And get comfortable. We're going to be here a while. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. As Lee, Jackson, and Stewart left Hood's position, they came to the troops in Stonewall's sector of the line. At the front, the six brigades of A.P. Hill's division were arrayed in two lines. Brigadier General James H. Lane's brigade of five North Carolina regiments held the left of Hill's first line, along a segment of the Richmond, Fredericksburg, and Potomac Railroad. To the right of Lane, situated across the crest of Prospect Hill, was the brigade of Brigadier General James J. Archer, containing regiments from Tennessee, Georgia, and Alabama. The All-Virginia Brigade of Colonel John M. Brockenbrough formed on Archer's right on Prospect Hill, stretching to Hamilton's Crossing, which, by the way, was not on the river, which you might think, but it was at the spot where the railroad turned away from the Rappahannock to cut through the high ground below Prospect Hill. A.P. Hill's second line was also composed of three brigades. The North Carolina Brigade of Brigadier General William Dorsey Pender formed in the wood line to the west of the cabins of Alfred Bernard's slaves. Bernard owned the manor house known as The Bend, which was about a mile and a half away. Alfred's brother, Arthur, owned another nearby manor house, known as Mansfield, which was now serving as the headquarters of Franklin's left Grand Division. Pender's line tied directly into Hood's position. Deployed 300 yards behind Lane's brigade and angled to the right of Pender was the Georgia Brigade of Brigadier General Edward L. Thomas. Brigadier General Maxie Gregg's South Carolina Brigade took up position in the woods between Lane's and Archer's brigades. Gregg positioned his regiments on the military road behind a tangled, waterlogged marsh. The road was actually a logging path that ran along the high ground, but the Confederates had improved the path in order to facilitate movement between the sections of their defensive line. Okay, so that tangled mass of trees and brush and swampy wetland created about a 600-yard gap between Archer's and Lane's brigades in A.P. Hill's first line. 
But Hill reasoned that if his men found it well nigh impossible to move through that difficult piece of ground as an organized body, then so would the Yankees. Just to be safe, though, Hill posted Maxie Gregg's brigade in reserve just behind the gap, that is, just behind the swampy spot. Robert E. Lee approved of Jackson's and Stewart's dispositions, including the gap left in A.P. Hill's front line. But the Confederate commander also paid close attention to the placement of his artillery. Lee's chief of artillery, Brigadier General William Pendleton, and Jackson's artillery commander, Colonel Stapleton Crutchfield, had identified several key spots for guns to be placed to cover Stonewall's portion of the battlefield. They had puzzled over the problem of covering the gap between Archer and Lane. While guns couldn't be placed in the gap itself, it was ultimately decided to place artillery on either side of the opening and in that way establish a crossfire across its front. Pendleton believed that the guns would lay down such a destructive fire that it would discourage the Federals from attempting to penetrate the gap. Besides the artillery that was positioned to repel any Yankee attack on Stonewall Jackson's line, there were also another 18 guns that Major John Pelham, Jeb Stewart's artillery chief, situated so as to cover the ground from Hamilton's crossing to the river. These guns were from Pelham's own horse artillery, reinforced by batteries from the Army's General Artillery Reserve. In addition to guarding Jackson's right, Pelham's guns were in an ideal position to shell the left flank of any federal movement aimed at Stonewall's line. With Longstreet's troops holding fortified positions on the high ground behind Fredericksburg, and with Stonewall Jackson's line below the town anchored on Prospect Hill, the Confederates, though outnumbered by the Yankee host across the way, were nevertheless supremely confident. Lee had been given the time he needed to concentrate his army and prepare his defenses. As the rebel commander finished his inspection of the southern portion of his lines and rode back to his field headquarters at Telegraph Hill, it isn't hard to imagine the confidence he felt that morning. Confidence in himself, in his army, and the position it occupied. Ambrose Burnside would have to be on the top of his game in order to best Robert E. Lee here at this place, on this day. On Saturday morning, if the Confederates were approaching the imminent battle with supreme confidence, the same could not be said for the Federals. As y'all recall, the night before, William Franklin and his lieutenants had urged Burnside to approve an all-out attack in their sector. Franklin would need time to organize such an assault, so he had urged Burnside to approve the attack right then and there, so that it could commence early the following morning. In that moment, though, Burnside wouldn't give them the green light, but he left Franklin and his generals with the impression that orders authorizing the attack would be forthcoming. After sharing dinner, Franklin, Baldy Smith, and John Reynolds waited for the orders to arrive, but the night wore on with no word from Burnside. Franklin never forgave Burnside for keeping the three of them, quote, sitting up the whole night like fools, end quote. Franklin supposedly sent an aide to inquire about the missing orders, 
but the man returned with a terse message from Burnside's headquarters that the orders would be sent when they were ready. As Franklin grew more and more annoyed and angry, Reynolds finally gave up at 3 a.m. and went to get some rest. Baldy Smith also went to bed, leaving Franklin alone to worry over the situation. Baldy Smith was as disgusted as Franklin with the situation. He later wrote, quote, Burnside had persisted in crossing the river after all hope of a surprise had faded away, and now we must fight under great disadvantages, end quote. Smith still believed an all-out assault by the left Grand Division, supported by elements of Hooker's command, could be successful, but he wondered, quote, would Burnside adopt our plan, and if so, why this delay, which was costing us so much valuable time? We had all known Burnside socially, long and intimately, but in his new position of grave responsibility, he was to us entirely unknown. In his book, The Fredericksburg Campaign, Winter War on the Rappahannock, Frank O'Reilly writes, John Reynolds was startled to awake in the fullness of morning on December 13th. Surprised that Franklin had not called him, he quickly dressed and returned to headquarters, accompanied by General George G. Meade. Smith also reemerged, and Franklin astounded them with news that the orders had not yet come. All of their plans for a swift strike before dawn had vanished. Sunrise came at 7.10, and the orders were nowhere to be had. Debate raged over what they should do. Franklin apparently refused to risk another rebuff because he made no more inquiries to headquarters. At 7.30 a.m., Brigadier General James A. Hardy of Burnside's staff ended the debate as he clopped up the driveway with the belated orders. O'Reilly goes on to note that the delay in orders became a point of contention between not just Franklin and Burnside, but also between Burnside and Hardy. The Army commander alleged that Hardy had delayed the delivery by stopping for a long breakfast along the way to Franklin's headquarters. An outraged Hardy denied this and said that besides the fact he wasn't given the orders for Franklin until a few minutes before 6 a.m., that once he started on his way, he immediately encountered icy roads, which slowed down his journey considerably. Well, regardless of the breakfast rumor or the frozen roads, the blame must ultimately rest with Ambrose Burnside for not getting the orders ready sooner. To make matters worse, though, the instructions Franklin received when he finally got them were not at all what he'd expected. They didn't seem to be the orders for a major attack by the left Grand Division that had been discussed with Burnside the previous evening. O'Reilly, in his book, says that Burnside's orders were, quote, an astonishingly vague and rambling directive. And George Rabel, in his book on the battle, notes that, quote, the document Hardy delivered to Franklin was a model of imprecision. Even after reading and rereading Burnside's orders, Franklin was unsure whether he was supposed to stand ready to make a major assault against the Confederates' extreme right flank, or whether he was only supposed to make an immediate demonstration against Prospect Hill with as little as one division. George Rabel writes, quote, what exactly had Burnside ordered Franklin to do? 
Unfortunately, later self-serving testimony by Franklin, Burnside, and other generals, along with the vaguely worded orders themselves, hardly cleared up this question. Confusion about the local road system on various maps makes sorting out the truth even more difficult. Months later, when Burnside was called before the Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War to explain what had happened at Fredericksburg, he indicated that he expected Franklin to make a major assault against the enemy to his front, while Sumner's Grand Division would sortie from Fredericksburg and assail Longstreet's position so that he couldn't send reinforcements down to Stonewall at the other end of the Confederate line. Most modern scholarship agrees that it was Burnside's intention that Franklin would make the main Union effort against the southern portion of the Confederate line, while Bull Sumner held Longstreet in place so he wouldn't be able to send aid to Stonewall. Whatever the merits of this strategy, the fact is that not one word of it was communicated to the Federal Grand Division commanders as they went into battle. They learned of it only when Burnside explained his thinking to the Congressional Committee. And with that, having set the stage for Franklin's assault on the southern portion of the battlefield, we're going to start to wrap up this episode. And we'll get to the start of the fighting here, and yes, the gallant Pelham, with the next episode. And besides Pelham's story, we'll also talk about how George Meade's division of Pennsylvania Reserves uh, unintentionally exploited that gap in A.P. Hill's line. And on the Confederate side, Maxie Gregg will pay for the Union breakthrough with his life. Anyway, lots of really interesting stuff to look forward to. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Simply Murder, The Battle of Fredericksburg by Chris Mikowski and Christopher D. White. This book by Mikowski and White is part of the Emerging Civil War series, which has been around for a while now, but is still going strong and continuing to add great new titles. If you're unfamiliar with the series, it offers, according to the back jacket of this book, compelling and easy-to-read overviews of the Civil War's most important battles and issues. And one nice thing we like about these books is that in each chapter there's a guide to help you walk around that section of the battlefield if you're actually visiting in person, touring the battlefield. So that's Simply Murder, The Battle of Fredericksburg by Chris Mikowski and Christopher D. White, which is part of the Emerging Civil War series. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. We want to be sure to thank the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, James and Kevin. And then Kevin also gave a very generous donation, so he gets a double thank you. Uh, and another donation uh, this past week came in from Ted G. And we appreciate donations since those pretty much go straight into the book fund. Uh, so thanks, guys. And then we want to ask if you listen to the podcast through iTunes, please consider taking a moment to give the show a five-star rating or even take a minute to give us a good review because... That helps other people discover the podcast. Yep. 
because that helps other people discover the podcast. Okay. Well, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you join us again next time when we'll continue with the story of the Battle of Fredericksburg. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.